maybe was extremely lucky. I have 1,333 Concorde flights under my belt. For many years I had a Chanel contract and we had this incredible luxury. I would hop on Concorde and sometimes the same night I flew back to Paris and this is the way our life was. We used to go to Studio 54. We used to go to the palace. It was extraordinary. This was maybe the golden age of aviation. Then the other side of this, I am right now since about 13 years involved in a major, major climate project. I started recording the decline of all the glacier masses and somebody looking at me, I must have probably the worst carbon footprint in the world. So our life drastically changed. And I think this is incredible what's happening today. We have right now about 33% less global pollution than we had in the month of December. So maybe we were kicked in our gut. Born in Zurich, Michel Comte moved to Paris as a fine art restorer in the 70s, where he was discovered by the late Karl Lagerfeld, who gave him his first fashion assignment for Chloe. Since then, he has traveled the world, capturing iconic portraits for all the major houses and publications, including Vogue and Vanity Fair. By the 1990s, he was one of the world's most in-demand photographers. Michel Comte is also the grandson of Alfred Comte, the legendary Swiss aviation pioneer. In 1919, together with the photographer Walter Mittelholzer, Alfred founded the airline Comte Mittelholzer and Company, which in time became Swissair, or the airline we now know today as Swiss. Alfred is now the subject of Michel's forthcoming book, Comte, Aviator, a visual biography of his grandfather's great successes and tragedies, a story also of the birth of Swiss aviation. Back in March, at a time when over a third of all planes had been grounded, I sat down with Michel Comte to reflect on the golden age of commercial air travel and on the extraordinary life and achievements of both grandfather and grandson. I'm Tyler Brule, and this is The Big Interview. Michel Comte, we meet in interesting times because we can rewind in a moment back to some of our first meetings, but we're sitting in the heart of Seefeld, of course, a part of Zurich you know very well, but also at a time when there are threats of groundings, uh, some airlines are already not flying in Europe. Many, uh, many. And of course, there is a very high profile story that both of us are involved with in some capacity, and we'll talk about that today, which is, of course, the Swiss Air story, the grounding of that airline. Potentially, something could have unfold again over this upcoming period. But today you've brought us a volume of paper. I'm sitting in front of this wonderful journal, which tells this amazing family story. And it's a family story that you started to relate to me on the terrace, not too far beyond these walls. And it's a family story. It's a story of aviation. And we also go through to a story about publishing, an amazing book, which is forthcoming but maybe um, we should spin the propeller back in time a little bit and tell me and about this desire to do this amazing book, Aviator, Comte Aviator, and where it all starts. I think, you know, we all have childhood memories. And in my family, everybody became extremely old and past 90. My father now is 94. But I lost my grandfather when I was very, very young. I think I was eight years old. 
but I remember every single meeting between me and my grandfather or when I stayed there every year over New Year. And I remember his voice, I remember his precision, and I remember how much of a bigger-than-life person he was. And you know, I, in Los Angeles, I lived in the, one of the houses Howard Hughes built and Howard Hughes lived. And I remember my grandmother telling me of conversations between my grandfather and Howard Hughes at the very, very end of his life. I never knew how they connected because my grandfather didn't speak proper English well. So I laid in my bedroom in Los Angeles imagining maybe my grandfather talking to Howard Hughes at the time in the same house. But anyway, this is just a very, very small vignette. Another incredible vignette was when I was in school in England, in boarding school. I was in Scotland hitchhiking to get back to school and it was rather late at night. I missed the last train and an Aston Martin DB4 stopped and window rolled down and a very dapper gentleman sat in the Aston Martin and said, where are you going, young man? I said, I have to go to Oxford. He says, well, this is a one-stop journey. I hope we're going to get along. Well, anyway, I couldn't believe my eyes that I was sitting in a DB4 and the gentleman, very, very, very funny, extremely eccentric, and said, you know, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Switzerland. He said, you're from Switzerland? Oh, my God. I used to go there. I had an incredibly close friend in Switzerland, and I'm an aviator. I flew in the Battle of Britain, and I flew with a lot of people. I had crazy pilot friends, but I never had an experience with anyone than with a very close friend of mine in Switzerland called Alfred Comte. And I said, well, that was my grandfather. So he started talking about their adventures and my grandfather, what he did and the acrobatics and the flights they had together. And the journey from Edinburgh to Oxford became very, very short. And a few days later, I ended up for Easter in Switzerland. I talked to my grandmother about the gentleman and she pulled up letters and he said you know I talked to Mr. Paul that's how we called him for 25 years we had correspondence he was a very close friend of your grandfather well these are two sort of distinct memories and also when I was very very little my grandfather built an, an incredible model airplane for me in wood I saw this model unfolding on the table, more beautiful than, than anything. And my grandfather, engineer, uh, airplane builder, built his first plane for me. So these are the, the memories. Then also, you know, I was involved for a little bit in the fashion business, for good or for bad, for almost 40 years. and just, just a little bit. Yes, just a little bit. And my grandfather, if you look at the photographs, was probably one of, they called him best dressed man in Switzerland for many years. And he would wear his tux under his leather clothes. He was 
not a very diplomatic man, and he got in arguments with people because he often felt that he was right, and he was right many times, but he made major, major mistakes that maybe cost him his airline in the end, or maybe his stubbornness made him lose uh, the biggest contract he had with the Swiss Air Force. So there is great successes and great tragedies in my family, and and it's basically really the beginning of Swiss aviation and the beginning what Adastra, Swiss Air Adastra, and then Swiss Air would have became with my grandfather in the end. It turned out a, a very different story. It's fascinating looking through this wonderful journal, which you said came together in the period of probably the 1950s. And there's uh, stories which date back from journals in here from the 40s and, and even goes further back. I want to ask you, though, Michelle, aviation in your life, as you said, you, you've, of course, been in fashion and had a, a many decades in that area. You've got a lot of projects going on now, which take you out into the world projects in Turkey and beyond. But your relationship with seeing the world, you remember everyone talks about a golden age of aviation. And I'm wondering, is there a time that you look back uh, right now and think that was it in terms of the experience of getting on an aircraft, settling in, crossing oceans and continents and arriving in a place? Do you look back nostalgically or do you also think, actually, you know what, I still go to Zurich Airport and things are still pretty good? You know, I I maybe was extremely lucky, just like yourselves. I think the two of us, like very few people in this world, even in our business, very few have seen like you and, and, and myself. And I have 1,333 Concorde flights under my belt. So basically, I took Concorde during its existence as an average every three or four days. For many years, I had a Chanel contract, and that brought me to New York and back to Paris every three days. And Carl was incredibly generous, and we had this incredible luxury to be on that bus, basically. I would hop on Concorde, and sometimes the same night I flew back, to Paris and next or to London and next morning I would be back on Concorde and this is the way our life was. We used to go to Studio 54, we used to go to the palace, we used to connect to Rio, Paris, Dakar. It was extraordinary. This was maybe the golden age of aviation. Then the other side of this, I am right now, since about 13 years, involved in a major, major climate project. And I've been following, actually, since my grandfather's pictures from 1914 that he took with Walter Mittelholzer of the Swiss glaciers. And by looking at my family albums and the photographs of Walter Mittelholzer, I saw the first pictures of glaciers, and basically I started recording the decline of all the glacier masses in the world. And somebody looking at me, I must have probably the worst carbon footprint in the world, probably as yourself. So our life drastically changed, and I think this is incredible what's happening 
Today, we have right now about 33% less global pollution than we had in the month of December. So maybe we were kicked in our gut by this. So going back to aviation, this is the way we lived our life. But I always feel like new horizons, new opportunities. You talk about a little bit of a correction here, documenting what's happening with the ice masses around the world. Maybe some type of penance for, of course, all of the flying that you did, and maybe you're also compensating for my flying as well, Michelle. But do you also worry, in these times right now where everyone said, okay, there's a correction going on, and it's good that we're all doing video conferences now, that we're able to not get on planes. But is there also a danger, because you are a man who has a history behind the lens, that you need to be witness to things as well? I mean, we see right now that there's maybe a fashion to use local photographers to cover conflicts, because it's cheaper on one side, maybe it's less danger, but... I believe that maybe the local photographer, as talented as they might be, they might deliver great images, but they have a different perspective. If you travel to a zone of conflict or another photojournalist does, you approach it with a different set of eyes. Do you, Michelle, see that there's a danger today that, yeah, we, we try to push these things further away. People say, maybe there's not the value of sending a photographer. We can do it remotely. And is that a problem in your mind? You know, I think there is... Uh great talent on every continent and I think we in times like this we have no alternative uh, I stopped my normal activity about 10 years ago and turned more into contemporary art and installations and I think I left my business the way I knew it exactly at the right time because I never wanted to be in the service business anymore as yourself, you're a publisher. Yes, we are somehow in the service business, but we are creating our own content. And I think the incredible part is going back to my grandfather. He had a dream and that dream brought him beyond borders and he created his content. There was no aviation in 1909. He went to Paris over an open border and within three weeks, he basically drove everyone in Paris crazy. He almost killed them by his huge knowledge of flying in such a short time. But I think everything's an opportunity. He took the opportunity to surround himself with other adventurers. So I think we have to now become adventurers in our own world. I think we, we need to find the good. You're in a world of doing art. You're a curator, you're a collector, you do installations. This is also about, not about just taking flight and telling a story of your grandfather, but this is also your move into starting your own publishing company as well, working with someone amazing like Steidl in Germany. I mean, really one of the most revered publishers. I believe, uh, thanks to Mr. Lagerfeld, they did most of the work for Chanel, so yeah. work going... Strange enough, no? Yeah, finally, finally enough. Strange enough. Yeah. And you know, the most odd thing, Carl passed away on my birthday last year, on February 19th, 1919. Can you imagine? And Carl gave me my first assignment ever. My first published pictures were, was the Chloe campaign. 
and Steidl became Koth publisher. I want to talk about the form of the book. When you went and spoke to Mr. Steidl, what do you want physically? And I want you to describe to our listeners what is the brief, the texture, the picture, because aviation is an amazing thing. I think one of the incredible things about aviation is how it's documented. We're so fascinated with flight and people talk about the plane spotters. And I believe it's probably going to be the one, if we're truly going to move to a digital world, I think one of the last places where you still have print devoted to any subject, it's going to be aviation. Because I even see looking in this journal from the 1950s, I see magazines like Airplane and all kinds of clippings about your grandfather. And there is this remarkable reverence for the men, the women, the engineers who have been able to get these aircraft into the sky. Why, why do you think that is? And, and tell us a little bit about what this book will be. I think I'm an extremely aesthetic person. So everybody asks me, you need to interview the people that are left over that your grandfather knew. I tried to talk to some of them, but it was very sketchy. First of all, they're all in their, their 90s, so the memory is not always uh, correct. So I started reading, you know, and the more I read through these articles, I felt I wanted to make an object with this book. And the, the object is extremely aesthetical. It's, uh, it's almost like a... The book has to be an object like an airplane, like uh, it's going to be in, in silver and, and blue, basically, and has two red pages or three red pages in the whole book, which is the color of, of Swiss air. But basically, all I did, I took images that I loved, images that I remembered from my grandfather, he loved to be photographed with his airplanes. There is some extraordinary photographs on Lake St. Moritz. You should look at them. What is incredible is him testing his airplanes on Lake Zurich because he had his factory on the lake and he basically put floats on his airplane because he felt when the planes landed on water, they're going to take a lot of shocks much better than on, on a runway. So he put basically water skis on all his planes and tested his planes on water and he built himself a super bush racing motorboat and he was driving his fast speedboat while the other pilots landed his planes. Now who would think to build a race boat on Lake Zurich and who would think in 1920 to land on a lake instead of on land to test his air. But my grandfather was like that. So he built his factory on Lake Zurich. He tested his airplanes on the lake and he drove or his partners drove the motorboats to check out the planes while they were taking off and landing on Lake Zurich. I don't think the Zurich Wasserschutzpolizei would like that very much today. The propeller-powered bush. I think he was the only... Only boat. <laughs> they, they, they wouldn't have caught him anyway. <laughs> but I've, actually, it's, it's an amazing story because when you think when, when you look at these images in here of these flying boats or these water-enabled aircraft, I've often thought, you know, wouldn't it be great? Not Concorde, but wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a service that you could get on a plane here and fly down to Geneva off the lake, take off from the, right here in Tiefenbrunnen in Zurich, and then and then land right at uh, the Bain de Paquis. For 14 years, you could take off on Hudson River and fly on a flying boat to Nassau, and you could go from Miami 
to Nassau Harbor, and when I was in Nassau the very first time in the 70s, the Grumman plane still took off in front of me in Nassau Harbor, landing from New York and Miami. Can you imagine? Yeah. I still witnessed that. Yeah. I think there's, well, there's, there's still an opportunity. And I think this might be the future with the new electric... I mean, Picard is very, very close with this. Yes. And this is also, I, I think... This cannot be about people in the past talking about the past. We need to embrace the past, learn from the past, but go into the future. Mm. There is something encouraging amidst all of this. And, and it's, it's interesting, though, isn't it? If you look back three months ago, let's think at the end of 2019, there was so much discussion about should you fly, should you not, flight shaming, all of these things. But it's incredible when you take a luxury like this away. I mean, what is the biggest story right now? Of course, yes, there is the the physical and, and the unfortunate effects of this virus. But much of the story is dominated, Michelle, by the fact that we're grounded. You remove a luxury, and, and, and it wasn't seen as a luxury three months ago. Aviation's a commodity. But aviation is something wonderful. And it's still, if you fly it's, first class like you and me, yes. <laughs> but not for the people who fly economy, I'm sorry to tell you. No, but I'm, it is a nightmare. Yeah, that is a nightmare. But I mean the act of flying, the act of flight. I mean it's, it's incredible. incredible. No matter when you land at any airport around the world, still today we've been, you know, flying for over a century, and yet there's still scores and scores of people just at the end of runways watching, photographing, documenting. And is that something that you maybe also want to rewind with this book in a celebration of your grandfather, that this was an incredibly edgy time. There was no autopilot. You're really talking about lawnmowers on top of some wonderful aerodynamic material. That's about it. Yeah, this is exactly the way it was. And these men were adventurous. They were dandies, in a way. I know that my grandfather, on the first meeting, took my grandmother up in the air it's like the Bentley boys, you know, the Rolls-Royce story or the Wright brothers. These were the flying boys at the time, like Howard Hughes. I mean, you look at the movie, uh, the Howard Hughes story, it's very, very similar. And I, I really compare these stories very, very similar. And also the, the great disasters that, that happened to these men and the tragedies that happened to, to Lindbergh. So... There was the upside, but there was the downside. For example, my grandfather was ordered to do the first military plane for the Swiss Air Force. And I somehow fell onto the letter of the Bundesrat last week for the first time, where I see that the contract got cancelled and the banks pulled the money. So... This basically put my grandfather's company into bankruptcy. So my grandfather then became partner with Mittelholzer, became called Mittelholzer RGE. They started their own private airport, their own private aviation company, and they started to do personal flights for people and a, a flying school and uh, photographic flights. I also had the incredible coincidence that I met Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier. He was extremely camera shy, but he heard my name. And when I met Chuck Yeager, he said, you know, there were two people in the world that I knew that were as crazy as I was. It's your grandfather and myself. 
Also, the incredible tragedy, if you look at all the men in the pictures, 1914, my grandfather was the only one. All these men, they died in their planes. Strange enough, my grandfather was the craziest. They said, everybody said he was the craziest. My grandfather, but always said, I was crazy, but I calculated my risks. But he never calculated his financial risks. He was reckless. So, this is the story that I witnessed growing up. Then it really dawned on me when my grandfather was 70 passed away. And when Swiss Air went bankrupt, it was the 70th birthday of my father. They rolled out all the Swiss Air, all Swiss Air airplanes for my father. But that day, all the airplanes of Swiss Air were uninsured because Swiss Air went bankrupt. And this is when Tyler Brulé came in after that. It could not be Swiss Air anymore. And the genius of turning Swiss Air into Swiss Airlines came from Tyler Brunet. When Swiss Air passed away, you took it up to another level. And my grandfather, before he died, said, never, never try to make Swiss Air become a big airline because it's going to be the end. If you do what others do, Swiss Air is going to die. Stay small, stay exclusive, and keep going because you were the best airline in the world at that time. They never listened to him. He was an old man. So, 70th birthday of my father was basically the funeral of Swiss Air. I'm curious for our listeners, who you might they might be sitting in Canada or Australia or listening to this in, in Japan, for a tiny landlocked country. Why is aviation so important? Why is the mythology of, of course, on one side flying over Alps, and you can see, yes, there was maybe a geographic imperative for aviation. Why is, is flight so important? Of course, it's a nation where there is, with Ruag, there's still aviation manufacturing happening here. Um, why, in your opinion, is, is flight so tethered to this nation? I mean, when I grew up, I wanted to see the world, and most Swiss I, I know, unless the ones that never leave Switzerland, they really are citizens of the world. I know many, many, many Swiss people that moved to Hong Kong, moved to New York. I mean, I had an incredible Swiss community in New York uh, in, the, in the 80s. I feel that also Swiss Air, as it was, became such an iconic machine and it was this red and silver planes that were so clean the service was so impeccable i know when sophia lauren always told me she lived in rome and many many people i knew they flew to zurich to fly swiss air i was very close to miles davis and miles always say i cannot wait to be back on that swiss airplane to go to montreux you know quincy quincy jones I want to fly Swiss Air. I just want to go back to Montreal and Swiss. It was an experience. And I think what globalization destroyed is the experience. They always say, this is progress. And I think maybe we need to go back to giving people a real experience. Concorde was an experience. It was not luxurious. The, the seats were small. But we were whisked to our small area, we had our caviar, we had our, not that that's of any importance, but 
it made us feel important. And it was not fancy people, the Concorde, it was eccentric people. Mm. And this kind of madness and this kind of, we need more of this, we need more risk takers, we need more, not looking at the numbers. The numbers are going to be good if you follow your dreams. If you create quality, we need to start thinking like this instead of getting on huge cruise ships, packing us on cheap airliners. We need to experience travel again. Maybe maybe we rebuild, we redesign our planes. Maybe we turn our planes into hybrids. Or maybe we need to ground a lot of planes. We need to rethink what we did. There has to be something good coming from this. Maybe there are going to be less of us traveling, or we're going to save up like we used to, to fly, and we're going to make it special. Maybe that will come out of it. Michelle, it has been an absolute delight. Thank you. My thanks to Michelle Comte. The book, Comte Aviator, is published by Steidl and out later this year. And that's it for this season of The Big Interview. Listen back to previous episodes on monocle.com forward slash radio or wherever you find better podcasts. The Big Interview is produced and edited by Jolene Goffin. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. Thanks very much for listening. (music) 